Okay, so this morning we're going to talk about Ulrich Zwingli. Here's a, a painting of Zwingli. You see he has a hat on. All the reformers and all these paintings are wearing hats. Now, if you're going to have a painting done, you wouldn't be wearing a hat, would you? Why are these guys always wearing hats? Because it's cold, and there's no central heat, and they wear, they wear hats all the time, except probably in July and August. They are always wearing hats because it's cold, and they live in Europe, and Zwingli lived in Switzerland, so it was especially cold. How many of you have heard of Zwingli before? Okay, just part of you. Everybody's heard of Martin Luther, but not everyone's heard about Ulrich Zwingli. But Zwingli was probably more influential than Luther on the long term. Although you haven't heard of him, you've heard of Luther because Luther wrote voluminously, and Zwingli did not. But Zwingli began the Swiss Reformation, which became Calvinism, and Calvinism branched out and, and uh, became the foundational theology for a whole bunch of denominations and has had more influence on the Western world than anything else that occurred during the Reformation. So he was born eight weeks after Martin Luther, so they're both the same age. And although Luther, as I mentioned, gets more attention, Zwingli probably has had a greater long-term influence. Zwingli played six different musical instruments, six. He was a bright guy. He was a little smarter than the average dude. Uh, he became a Catholic priest at his young age, and, he, and when he was a new Catholic priest, this is before the Reformation started, we're talking about 1500, 1505-ish, he kept, he kept a concubine. She was the barber's daughter in the village that he lived in, and in those days, the corruption was so great in the church that if you were a priest, of course, priests couldn't marry. Even today, Catholic priests cannot marry. But if you paid the bishop a fee, a monthly fee, you could keep a concubine, which is what Zwingli did. Later on in his life, he repented of this. And although they never met, he was a theological father to John Calvin, who we'll talk about more next week. And as I mentioned, we'll go long-term Calvinism has been much more influential than Lutheranism. Before the Reformation, Zwingli was a chaplain with the Swiss mercenary troops in Italy. So you've probably all heard that in the Vatican in Rome today, they have Swiss guards. How many of you heard about the Swiss guards in the Vatican? Okay. That's a, that's a, a heritage that goes way, way back. In the medieval years, the Swiss soldiers were considered especially effective soldiers. They were really good in battle. They were fearless. And so the Swiss cantons, whom we'll talk about in a few moments, would make extra money by hiring out their soldiers to France and Italy and Germany and Austria when they went into battle. And so uh, uh, before the Reformation, Zwingli was a chaplain with some of these Swiss mercenary groups that went to, they were hired by the Italians and he was in a battle with, with the troops, and there was just a slaughter. 6,000 Swiss soldiers died, and he came back from that convinced that this was a bad practice, hiring out soldiers. He died in, himself died in battle when he was 47. He was a very loyal Swiss citizen where he lived his entire life. Here's another picture of Zwingli. It's a line drawing. You can see he's not a real handsome guy. He's got kind of a big nose, and... I, we don't know how tall he was, probably average height. Um, you need, before we talk too much about Zwingli, we need to talk about the Swiss cantons. 
C-A-N-T-O-N-S. Here's a map of Switzerland. And you'll see the green area is, or the big brown area around the outside is the map of modern Switzerland. And up to the left we have France, and to the top we have Germany, and to the right we have Austria, and down below we have Italy. So here's Switzerland. The green area, this is the Swiss cantons in 1513. The green area would be these different cantons. You see right in the middle you have in big bold letters burn. That's a Swiss canton. Each canton was like, we would consider it like a county today. But each canton was self-governing. They were basically city-states. And eventually these Swiss city-states formed a confederation with each other, which became Switzerland. And they confederated together to, to uh, uh, in times of when they were going to be attacked by somebody, they would confederate together and their troops would all join together to protect Switzerland from invading forces from the outside. So during the Reformation, these cantons became very important. At the bottom, far down the bottom left, you see Geneva. We see Savoy in the bottom left and Geneva. That's going to become very, very important in the Protestant Reformation. That's where Calvin was. And in the upper right, we, at the top, we see Zurich. Zurich is where uh, Zwingli is going to eventually be. And in the middle, we see Lucerne. And in the upper left, we see, in the, up in the middle, we see Basel, B-A-S-E-L. Basel was the most important military canton among the Swiss at this point in time. All the surrounding countries feared Basel, Basel because of its, its military prowess. So as we talk about Zwingli's life, the context is Switzerland, and the context are the Swiss cantons. Let's look at Zwingli's education. He was born in Switzerland. He attended the University of Vienna and the University of Basel. He was a smart guy. Now, we have to remember that at this point in time, maybe one or two percent or less of the people get a college degree. In fact, most people can't even read or write. So for, for Zwingli to go to the University of Vienna and the University of Basel means he's a, a man of extraordinary intelligence because he didn't come from a wealthy family. He was influenced by the new humanism that was so prominent at this point in time, especially the writings of Erasmus. And we talked about Erasmus a couple weeks ago, and we'll come back to him again in a couple weeks. From Erasmus, Zwingli absorbed the Latin expression ad fontes, which just means back to the sources. That was what the Renaissance was all about. It was back to the original sources of Greek and Roman learning. And so... Uh, he absorbed from Erasmus ad fontes and a desire for moral renewal in the church. Not theological renewal, but for moral renewal. So Erasmus looked at the Roman Catholic Church at this point in time and said, it's a moral mess. Think back what we just said about the bishop taking money and allowing the priest to keep a concubine, okay? It's a moral disaster. And so Erasmus sees that and he recognizes that moral renewal is needed what he doesn't recognize is that theological renewal is what's going to be required to produce the moral renewal. Let's, look, let's move beyond his birth and his education to his ministry. In 1506, he was ordained a Roman Catholic priest. He was born in 1484, January. So he's about 22 years of age. The Reformation hasn't begun yet. It doesn't begin until 1517, roughly, when Luther posts his theses. So... He's just a new priest, and he's a priest in the village of Glarus. You can see, do you see Glarus on the right, in the right middle? 
That's, this, that's the canton of Glarus, and right above it is a little dot in small letters, the town of Glarus. It's a village. And this is where he keeps the concubine that, that's the daughter of the local barber. After about 10 years, you see the little town above it, Einsiedeln. He, that town calls him to preach at Einsiedeln, where he goes eventually. That's in 1516, 10 years later. While he's in Einsiedeln, I hope I'm saying that right, he purchases a copy of Erasmus' Greek New Testament. Now, remember, Erasmus, per, per, uh, remember, back to the sources. We're going to go back to the sources. That's the rallying cry of the Renaissance. And so, what language was the Bible written in? It was, the New Testament was written in Greek, and the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. But the only Bible Europe has at this point in time is a Latin translation done by Jerome in the fourth century. And so, obviously, the, some scholars have Greek New Testaments, but they ever, nobody reads those. But they want, so, so the pressure's on to go back to the sources. So Erasmus is a Greek scholar, and he publishes a Greek New Testament in 1516, which has had a huge, huge impact on the Reformation. In his Greek New Testament, <clears throat> on one side was the Greek translation, and on the other side was the Latin Vulgate. So that anybody that could read Greek and Latin could compare the two of them. And of course, there were all kinds of errors on the Latin Vulgate uh, and that the church had built its theology on. And uh, so, when, when they looked at the Greek New Testament, which now Ulrich Zwingli and Luther both bought a copy of the Greek New Testament when it first came out in 1516, and the Reformation was the next year, 1517. So, this Greek New Testament was huge in, in uh, promoting a Reformation. Zwingli memorized large portions of the New Testament in Greek. He taught himself to read New Testament Greek, which is pretty amazing. Anybody that's tried to learn to read, learn to read or study Greek knows how difficult that is just to learn it, let alone to memorize most of the New Testament in Greek. Okay, so he, he knows nothing about Martin Luther at this point in time, but Zwingli is discovering justification by faith alone, just as Luther did. And he's gaining a growing reputation as a preacher. He was a really good preacher. The next year, Luther nails his 95 Theses to the Wittenberg church door. And in the meantime, Zwingli has repented of keeping the concubine, uh, which has been in the past, but now he realizes his great sin and he's repented of it. And he's really changing. He's the, the gospel is beginning to master him. At this point, he's been a priest about 12 years. In 1519, the great cathedral church in Zurich, there's a picture of it as it is today, calls him to be their people's priest. And that's because of his reputation as a preacher. He's at Ein, when he's at Einsiedeln, he preaches. And remember now, at this point in time, preaching is not very common. There, there are very few, most of the priests can't read. They're not literate. And so they can't preach. They, they can't even read the Bible, let alone preach. And so, preaching, as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, is mostly done, if there's any done at all. It's done by the mendicant friars, which would be Franciscans or Dominicans. As they're passing through town, they preach, because that was their specialization. So, the average person does, is not exposed to any preaching. They go into Mass. The Mass takes 20 or 30 minutes. The host is elevated. Everybody takes their bread and wine, and they go home. But there's almost no doctrinal 
exposition. There's almost no doctrinal teaching. There's just the superstitions and the traditions of the Catholic Church. So Zwingli, by contrast now, is preaching. He's called to the great cathedral church in Zurich to be their preacher. In Zurich, Zwingli begins to reject the Catholic liturgy and begin to preach through the New Testament starting at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. That was something else that no one did, which was preach through a book of the Bible. Not only is they not preaching, but if there is preaching, they're not preaching consecutively verse by verse through a book of the Bible. Rather, there's just occasional topics. But Zwingli does something really unique for the time. He begins to preach through a book of the Bible. Now, that, to do this, he had to push back hard against the Catholic authorities because the Catholic priest was given a liturgy each week that all the priests throughout Europe used the same exact text of Scripture. If they read from the Bible, they read from the same text. And if there was any preaching, it was on that text. Zwingli rejects all that and decides to chart his own course. He's going to preach from the Bible and he's going to preach consecutively. Zwingli also published his own 67 theses. Now, remember Martin Luther tacked 95 theses to the church door. Zwingli, a year or two later, published his 67 theses. They were different than Luther's. Luther's 95 theses were a, were a rallying cry against indulgences. But Zwingli's 67 theses were more like a systematic theology. They, it was kind of a statement of theology of the new Protestantism. And Thesis 49, here's an example, was this, quote, I know of no greater scandal than that priests may not marry, but may keep a mistress if they pay a fine to the bishop. So this, he's very sensitive to this issue, having violated sin in this area himself. And so that's Thesis 49. After two disputations, <clears throat> which means he meets with Catholic scholars and Protestant scholars meet, and they have a disputation in the city to argue whether the city is going to become Catholic or Protestant. After two of these disputations, Zwingli eventually broke with Rome, insisting that he discovered the gospel independently of Luther. And Zwingli, like Luther, opposed the indulgence trade, he, and he also very aggressively opposed the mercenary trade of Swiss soldiers to be hired out by other countries. As he increasingly saw the implications of the gospel, he began to shed Roman Catholic traditions and ceremonies like purgatory, praying to saints, uh, the worship of Mary and praying to Mary, <clears throat> image worship. All the churches at this point in time are filled with statues and relics. Do you know what relics are? Well, Protestants may not be conversant with relics. So the Catholics in those days, would they would keep... Um, if, if a famous saint died, they would carve his body up, and you would have a bone of St. Francis as a relic. And people, the people felt, Roman Catholics felt that if they touched that bone or got near to it, they would get special blessings from God. You know, the, uh, in Wittenberg, Frederick the Wise, who protected Luther, had a whole relic collection. And in his relic collection, he had what he thought was a little vial of milk from Mary's breast, and a little piece of uh, wood from the original cross. Most of this stuff was all fabricated, but people thought that that's what these things were, and they, there's just superstition is ripe and, and rank. Well, Zwingli rejects all of this. 
And he rejects justification by works. He rejects the Catholic Mass. He rejects the seven sacraments and reduces those to two, baptism and communion. And he rejects the primacy of the Pope, etc. While his Reformation teaching was remaking Zurich, the plague was killing 30% of the population. Zwingli caught it, was sick for three months, but eventually recovered. Some people got the plague and recovered from it. Now, the plague first appeared in Europe 200 years prior to this. I want to take you back mentally to the 16th century. The plague first came to Europe in the 14th century, and, but it keeps coming back. So when it first came through Europe, it killed a third of the population. And the plague keeps every couple generations, the plague comes back. And that's come back to Zurich just as Wingley arrives in Zurich in 1519. And so he's the people's priest. He's preaching. 30% of his congregation is dying from the plague. Just, just imagine this for a moment. Imagine the terror you would feel if that was the case today. And there's no cure for the plague at this point. They have no idea what causes it. They have no cure for it. People catch it, about 80% of the people that catch it die from it within a day or two. Imagine yourself as a mother and as a father with your children. Imagine what life was like. Also understanding that this recurs every 20 or 30 years. The plague comes back again. Living, you'd be living in constant anxiety and fear about the plague, let alone fires. When fires occurred, there were no fire departments. And when a fire occurred in the city, it just went wild and burned and burned and burned, and there was no way to stop it. People lived in constant terror of fire, of the plague, of wars. It was not a nice time to be alive. And, and this is the environment in which Zwingli is preaching and the Reformation is taking place. 1521, remember he comes to Zurich in 1519, Zwingli rejected Lenten fasting by eating sausages in public during the fast. Now, the Catholic Church had fast during Lent, and you had to follow the fast. If you didn't, it was a mortal sin. And if you, didn't, if you died before you went to confession, you'd go to hell. Well, Zwingli is rejecting all this, and right out in public, he takes a big sausage and eats it in front of everybody, saying, basically, I'm rejecting these legalisms. Some of the other Swiss cantons objected to Zwingli, and he responded this way. For God's sake, he told them, do not put yourself at odds with the Word of God, for truly it, meaning the Word of God, will persist as surely as the Rhine follows its course. One can perhaps dam it up for a while, but it is impossible to stop it. That's how Zwingli felt about the power of God's Word, and that's, been, that's the way it's been throughout history. And the city council turned and defended him. In 1522, he secretly married a wealthy, influential widow with three children named Anna Reinhardt. Here's a painting of Anna. Now, he secretly married her because he's still a Catholic priest, or he's just at the place where he's getting ready to leave the Catholic Church. He's asked the bishop for permission to marry. The bishop says, absolutely not. You're a Catholic priest. Priests cannot marry. So he marries this woman in secret. Nobody knows he's married to her, but they're married. He's not, she's not a concubine. They're not living together. Two years later, when Zurich becomes officially Protestant, he has a public wedding ceremony, and their marriage is celebrated publicly. Glenn Sunshine, in his little book on the Reformation, writes, although Zwingli and Lutheran's doctrines were quite similar, 
The Swiss reformer emphasized preaching and teaching the Bible more than Luther did. Now, of course, Luther emphasized it big time, didn't he? Among other things, this meant that Zurich had a more austere approach to worship. Images and organs were removed from the churches as being either idolatrous or a distraction from the pure preaching of the Word. Zwingli's humanist training also made him more concerned with external behavior than Luther, whose background in a monastery made Luther allergic to giving works any role in religion except as an expression of thanks to God. So remember we, we mentioned last week how Luther struggled with his scruples. And when he understood justification by works, faith alone, it was such an incredible breakthrough for him that he, in a sense, uh, didn't emphasize works enough in the Christian life. Zwingli's putting in more, although Zwingli also agrees with justification by faith alone, Zwingli's putting more of an emphasis on the importance of works in the Christian life. Zwingli's also uh, much adhering much more closely to the second commandment, which forbids any kind of image worship. And Zwingli's connecting this to Catholicism. Remember the church in Zurich is filled with statues all around of saints and famous people. And the, and the people of Zurich now for a thousand years have been coming into the church and praying to the statues and all these things which are explicitly forbidden in Scripture. Zwingli was willing to go much farther with what's, what's called iconoclasm, which means getting rid of icons or images. Uh, stain, images in stained glass windows, for example, that the people tended to worship. The Stations of the Cross, if you're Catholic, you know what the Stations of the Cross. All these things, Zwingli's eliminating. Luther is not doing that. Luther's kind of doing that a little bit, but not really. And that's because Luther was, a, was heavily influenced by his time as a Catholic monk. Zwingli's a little bit more radical in his approach to the Reformation than Luther was. In 1525, a couple years later, Zurich abolishes the mass. Zurich also abolished the monasteries, uh, took all the wealth that the monasteries owned, which was quite significant, and gave that money to the poor. Now, this brings us to a, a short switch and subject, and we'll come back to Zwingli in a minute, which is to turn and talk about the Anabaptists. How many of you have heard of Anabaptists? Okay, good. Anabaptist just means rebaptism. Anna, rebaptize. The Anabaptists and the magisterial reformers were two of the three major streams of early Protestantism. So we have Lutheranism in northern Germany. We have the reform phase starting with Zwingli in Switzerland, and that's going to be catapulted forward by John Calvin next week. And then we also have the third group of reformers, which were Anabaptists. Now, the Anabaptists were a minority. Uh, there's two terms, Anabaptists and magisterial reformers. Theologians always talk about the magisterial reformers. The magisterial reformers were those that were not Anabaptists, which would have been the, the Calvinists, the Zwinglians, and the Lutherans. Anabaptists, as I mentioned, refers to rebaptism. Anabaptist leaders were a couple of men. Here's one of them, Conrad Grebel. I'm, I got this image. <laughs> on the web, but I'm a little bit dubious about it, because you'll see he's wearing a collar, which is what they wore in, this, in the 17th century, and he's not wearing a hat, which was not normal for this point in time. Here's the other guy. He looks more like the part, doesn't he? Felix Mance. These two men 
were friends of Zwingli's. They lived in Zurich with Zwingli. They both had college degrees. They were well-educated. And they started what were called the Swiss Brethren because it originates in Zurich in Switzerland. And they are the first of the Anabaptists. They begin to question not the basic content of the reform, but the speed with which it's being carried out. Zwingli was more conservative. He was a gradualist. But Grubbel and Mance were ready to wipe out all the abuses with one blow. Glenn Sunshine, in his little book on the Reformation, which I highly recommend, wrote this. The Swiss Brethren rejected the notion of reforming the church altogether, arguing that the church was so hopelessly corrupt that reform was impossible. Instead, the church needed to return to the model of the book of Acts, where the church existed as a voluntaristic community of faith in an evil world. The key phrase there is a voluntaristic community of faith in an evil world. Let's look at the magisterial reformers for a second and try to get to the, get to the bottom of this, the conflict between Zwingli and the magisterial reformation and these men who are Anabaptists. Medieval people assumed that European society was a Christian society, often referred to by the Latin term corpus Christianum, or body of Christ. Medievalists assumed that each member of society entered the church through infant baptism. And the Catholic Church taught that through baptism, you're actually regenerated or born again. So every little infant at age three, three or four days is taken to the church, the water is sprinkled over the head and they're baptized, and the church believes that now they are born again. They're regenerated. They've received a change of nature. Of course, we as Protestants reject that wholeheartedly, and we should biblically. But that, that has created the idea that society is a Christian society because everybody was baptized as an infant. It was just part of the deal. People at this time assumed that church and society therefore were one, that the Reformation should cooperate with the civil magistrate. These ideas had the effect of baptizing the civil government. So here's, to understand this, think about Zurich for a moment. In Zurich, Zwingli holds disputations with the Catholics. But who's going to decide whether Zurich becomes Protestant or Catholic? Is it the people? No. It's the magistrate, the city council. The mayor of the city and the city council, the city government, makes a decision. And they make a decision that Zurich is going to be Protestant. And so, all the Catholics are kicked out. Catholic mass is ended. All the Catholic stuff ends. And Zurich becomes a Protestant canton. The same happened at all the cantons of Switzerland. The same happened throughout Germany and throughout France. Whatever the magistrate decided the religion would be, that's what it was. Well, the Anabaptists reject this wholeheartedly, and they were right in doing this. The Anabaptists said, no, there's a division between the church and the world. Uh, people leave the world, they leave European society, and they join the church. And the church is separate from the society. And the magistrates do not control what the church does or doesn't do. The church is a group of called out people. They're called out of the world into the church. And the way we know they've joined the church is that they're baptized as adults. Now, we would agree with this wholeheartedly today. In fact, you're going, duh, come on, Bill. Isn't this the way it always is? We assume this today. But in the medieval world, this was not assumed. For a thousand years, church and state had been one. And so, here's Zwingli. Zwingli's trying to go all the way with the Bible, but he doesn't see this. 
The Anabaptists see this, and the Anabaptists break with the, the Swiss Reformation, and, and they call themselves the Swiss Brethren. The problem is this was such a threat to the unity of the state at that point in time that the state begins to persecute the Anabaptists viciously. I mean, we're talking viciously. Many of the Anabaptists, because they believed in getting baptized as adults, even though they were baptized as infants, and that that baptism signifies now that they've left the world and joined the church, they take the Anabaptists out and they, and they drown them in the Rhine River. As a, well, you want to be baptized? We'll baptize you. We'll, we'll drown you in the Rhine River. Hundreds of them were drowned. Yet people continued to go with the Anabaptists. Here's a painting. This was done in the 16th century. It's titled Anabaptist Persecution. But you can see in this picture, these Anabaptists are all being burned at the stake. And you can see the stakes. There's, there's six, seven, or eight stakes there. And to each stake, several Anabaptists are t tied, and they're having a mass burning as they're putting the Anabaptists to death. So the Anabaptists were right with regards to church and state, but they were wrong in some other areas. All the Anabaptists were pacifists, uh, and the Anabaptists as a group, uh, some of them rejected the Old Testament totally. Uh, some of them were polygamists. So theologically, the Anabaptists were a really mixed bag. They were right on baptism. They were right that the church should be separate from the civil society. They were right that the magistrates should not control the church, but in many other areas, they were really wrong. So it was... It was a, the issue gets complicated, okay? I'm going to catch up with where I am in, uh, so far. So the Anabaptists are scattered throughout Germany and throughout Holland. Today, we still have Anabaptists in our midst. In fact, I talked to some this week. We were in Chihuahua. Judy and I had a little uh, outdoor uh, market or fair there. They had a bunch of booths, and they, people were selling bread and homemade bread and meat and cheese and uh, all kinds of homemade uh, goodies. It was a, a little outdoor market. And there was a, a little, uh, one of the booths, uh, it was called the Bread Box. It was a little local. It was, it was sponsored by a local bakery in Chihuahua. And all the girls in the Bread Box that were selling stuff had skirts onto the floor. Their hair was in buns and they had little doilies on their heads. So I knew they were Anabaptists. So I went over and said to them, are you Amish? They were very nice. Amish are one of the groups of Anabaptists today. They said, no, we're Mennonites. And I said, oh, because most Mennonites, Mennonites are one of the branch of Anabaptists today, most Mennonites just dress like normal people. They don't, it's the Amish that dress in strange garments and the Hutterites and the, and the Dukabors and people like that. Those are, these are all different Anabaptist groups today. But, and they were very nice to me, very kind, and we had a nice visit. I, I didn't tell them that I was a retired pastor. They, I'm sure they wondered how I knew who they were and what they were doing, but... That's what's happened to the Anabaptists today. They're in North America, mostly in rural areas, mostly in farming. During the Reformation period, the Anabaptists were, were super moral, super hardworking, and very um, dependable and loyal. So everybody wanted to hire the Anabaptists. So although the Anabaptists are being persecuted, some, the church and the government are persecuting the Anabaptists, but the counts 
and the people that own the states, they want to hire the Anabaptists because they're so hardworking, they're so frugal, they're so loyal, and they're so honest that they can be trusted. So both these things are going on. So the Anabaptists have a really um, interesting history. If you want to read about the Anabaptists, there's a good book called The Anabaptist Story. You can, if you go to my uh, if you ask for a copy of my notes, if you email me, I'll send it to you, and there's a bibliography at the end uh, about books on the Anabaptists. So today, they are fragmented into Mennonites, Amish, Hutterites, Dukobors, and some other groups that you and I have never heard of. The Baptists, the idea of being baptized as an adult was, was a new idea in 16th century Europe that had not been practiced for several hundred years, excuse me, several thousand, over a thousand years. In the early church, people were baptized as adults and not as infants. We don't really know much about that period in terms of baptism. We don't have much history on whether infants were baptized in the first century or adults were baptized. But the idea of adult baptism first reemerges with the Anabaptists in the 16th century. Now, we jump forward 100 years to the 17th century, and we get to the, the Reformation in England, and we're in the 1650s, and John Bunyan is a Baptist. We all know about John Bunyan. And John Bunyan at that time was a Baptist when very, very few, he's not an Anabaptist, but he's a, a Baptist as Baptists are today. In other words, He's not, a, he's, a, he's not an Anabaptist, but he's just a Baptist as a Southern Baptist would be in North America today. And Bunyan and his group of people are the first of the modern Baptists. I want to switch gears, go back now to Zwingli. We'll go to 1529. Zwingli's in his 40s. And in an attempt to unify the various strands of Protestants, Zwingli and Luther finally met at what was called the Marburg Colloquy in 1529. They were both in their late 40s. And ironically, the sacrament designed to express unity of the Lord's Supper became the greatest source of controversy. It became the source of division. We have to ask ourselves and say to ourselves, how ironic that this is the case. And the question was, how is Christ present in the Lord's Supper? Catholics believe that the body and blood, uh, that the bread and the wine actually became the body and blood of Christ. Luther said, no, no, that, that, that's going too far. God, the, Christ is present in and around the, the bread and the wine, but the bread and the wine don't actually become the body and blood of Christ. Zwingli said, no, the bread and wine don't become the body and blood of Christ, and Christ is not in and around the bread and the wine, but Christ is present in the communion service. Now, Zwingli's understanding of the Lord's Supper is what most Protestants adhere to today. But this became a great sticking point, and the tragedy is the Bible's not crystal clear on this subject. Just like the Bible, you know, please don't throw stones at me here, just like the Bible isn't crystal clear on the timing of baptism either. There's significant evidence in the Bible, some evidence for infant baptism, as much as that is abhorrent to us. But we are Baptists. The problem is the Bible does not have any explicit statements anywhere about the timing of baptism, so it all has to be reasoned derivatively. And it's the same with the Lord, how Christ is present in the Lord's Supper. So, in other words, we need to be very tolerant of differing views here. 
And it's the same with the Lord's Supper. Well, Zwingli and Luther could not tolerate each other. So they had 15 issues to discuss. They went through 14, and they agreed on the first 14. They only had one issue left to discuss, and it was, how is Christ present in the Lord's Supper? And Luther, to his shame, here's a, here's a, a picture of the, the, the Marburg Colloquy. You can see Luther and Zwingli, kind of in the upper middle, talking to each other, and they get pretty heated. Luther pulls out his knife. Everybody carried a knife in those days because you ate with your knife and you protected yourself with it. Takes out his knife and he goes, and he carves in the table talk, top in Latin, hoc est meum, which means uh, hoc est corpus meum. This is my body, which is what Jesus said at the Last Supper. He said, this is my body, take and eat. Okay, so Luther takes that very literally. And the worst thing was is the way he relates to Zwingli. Zwingli was much more, uh, Zwingli was much, not quite as volatile as Luther was. But Luther says, Mark Galley said, Luther said, Zwingli was of the devil and that he was nothing but a wormy nut. That's not, uh, let's see. Life and death are in the power of the tongue. Zwingli resented Luther's treating him like an ass. It was evident that no reconciliation was possible. Zwingli thought that the Lord's Supper was, was a memorial. This is my body was metaphorical. Quote, Zwingli thus argued that the elements represent Christ's body and blood and that Christ was present spiritually in a special sacramental way in the Lord's Supper. And as I mentioned, this is the standard view of most Protestants today. It's called the spiritual presence. When all was said and done, Zwingli and Luther put different emphases on four theological subjects. So, Luther says to Zwingli, Zwingli, Zwingli says, I can compromise on this subject. And Luther should have been able to compromise too. Luther says, if you can compromise on this subject, this subject is so important. If you can compromise on this subject, you're not fit to be a pastor. Okay? So, here's Luther. He has feet of clay, doesn't he? Like we all have feet of clay. It's kind of nice... You kind of get upset with yourself sometimes, don't you, for the things you say or you don't say or mistakes, you, judgment that you make. Well, this divided the Protestant church in two 500 years ago, and it's never been reassembled. So, you know, it's tragedy. It's absolute tragedy, yet God has used it for good. And we can say, of Luther, was he a great man? Yes, he was. Was he a brave man? Yes, he was. Single-minded, brave beyond description, committed to the gospel, but also volatile, and a man who sometimes speech wasn't always, uh, his speech sometimes was, what's the right word I'm looking for? His speech sometimes was, very, was volatile. He said things he shouldn't have said, and he said things in ways that he shouldn't have said them, which caused great damage. I have done the same, so I'm, I'm very compassionate towards Luther. But in Luther's case, because of his influence, it had a 500-year, it was 500 years ago, and the effects are still being felt today. So we can boil down Luther's and Zwingli's differences in, basically, their differences in emphasis. There's four of them. The first is iconoclasm. And here we have a, 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 also an old, old painting. It shows... 
in Zurich and other Swiss churches, you see in the bottom right, we got that guy carrying, he's carrying a statue and he's throwing it on a fire and you see the fire, there's a whole bunch of other statues on the fire. This is iconoclastic work. They're getting rid of the idols. They're purging the church. Protestant worship is simple. No images, no, you notice around the room here, no statues, no images, no crucifixes. Catholics have what's called a crucifix. It's a cross, but it has a body on it. Catholics and Protestants go, no, 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 no. No body on the cross. That's an idol. And why is that important? Because God is a spirit. And to confine God to some material image is to greatly reduce God, to dishonor God, because God is infinite in His majesty and His grace and His glory. And the second commandment protects that. So here we have the Protestants purging the churches of idols and cleaning things up, iconoclasm. That was the first difference. Luther was not very strong on getting rid of the idols and the images. Zwingli was, and almost all Protestants have followed Zwingli since. Second difference was emphasis was music. Luther was a positive here on music. He, Luther wrote hymns. Before the Protestant Reformation, the congregation didn't sing at all. The congregation knelt or sat in mass. There was a choir back up behind them, and the choir sang, but the people didn't sing. With the Protestant Reformation, Luther introduced congregational singing. This seems strange to us today because all congregations sing today. That's because we are post-Reformation. And Zwingli also emphasized music. Remember, he played six instruments. But Zwingli felt that having an organ in the church was idolatrous, so he removed musical instruments. The third difference we already mentioned was the Lord's Supper. And the fourth difference, which would show up very strongly later on in Zwingli's, uh, those that followed him, was social concern. Zwingli put a much larger emphasis on social concern, which appears in Calvinism. Calvin now is going to follow Zwingli, and he's going to amplify that more. In other words, concern about changing civil government, um, concerns about taking care of the poor, all those kinds of things. Zwingli emphasized that more. And that takes us to wrap up Zwingli's life, his death. I mentioned when we started, he died in battle. In 1531, the Swiss cantons that were Roman Catholic attacked the Zurich canton. If we go back to our picture of our map of Switzerland, the green area are areas that became mostly Protestant, and the brown areas around remain Roman Catholic. And so what's happening now at the Battle of Kappel is the, pro the Catholic, some Catholic cantons are attacking the Zurich, the canton of Zurich, because there's a lot of, I won't go into all the details in the background, so Zurich goes out to meet the Catholic cantons in battle, and Zwingli goes out as a chaplain for the Zurich army. Zwingli is killed in the battle, and uh, it's a really a big deal. Now, his friend Myconius described his death this way. After being wounded, Zwingli said, they can kill the body, but not the soul. And after these words, he fell asleep in the Lord. But after the battle, when our forces had withdrawn to a stronger position, so Zurich lost the battle. The enemy had time to look for Zwingli's body, both his presence and his death having been quickly reported. He was found by the Catholics, judgment was passed on him, and his body was quartered, quartered into four big pieces, 
and burnt to ashes. Now, this was normal in the 16th century. It was a brutal time. Oftentimes, people were quartered when they were alive still. So, as when they was lucky, he was quartered when he was dead. He was only 47. Glenn Sunshine writes, the Battle of Kappel was a disaster for Zurich and for the advance of Protestantism in Switzerland. Zurich's ambition to become a dominant power in Switzerland was ended. Swiss territories pressured into Protestantism were permitted to return to Rome. Catholic cantons were not to be targets for missionary activity. The mercenary trade was allowed to continue as well. But Swiss Protestantism was still alive and well. So the Reformation, Bullinger succeeds Swingley and Zurich, and if you look to the left of Zurich, we see Basel. The Reformation spreads from under Bollinger's influence, spreads from Zurich to Basel, and then we go down to the bottom left, and it spreads from there to Geneva. And from Geneva, the Reformed faith spreads to the world, okay? When Zwingli died in 1531, John Calvin was a 22-year-old Frenchman on the threshold of conversion. So Zwingli's 47 when he died, I think. Calvin's 22-ish. So Zwingli and Luther are old enough to be Calvin's father. In 1536, four years, five years later, Calvin publishes the first edition of his Institutes of the Christian Religion. And six months later, he's a pastor in Zurich, excuse me, Geneva. And he, we'll talk about that more next week. In 1534, three years after Zwingli's death, Henry VIII declared himself the head of the Church of England, and England breaks from the Roman Catholic Church. And in 1534, you probably don't know anything about this, but this is very important, Ignatius Loyola, who was a student with Calvin at the University of Paris, founds the Jesuit order and begins the Counter-Reformation. All of this we'll talk about more in future weeks. So in this five-year period, big things happen. Zwingli dies, Calvin's converted, Calvinist young man publishes his first copy of the Institutes, Calvin ends up in Geneva, the English church breaks from the Roman church, and at the time, a guy who's completely unknown, Ignatius Loyola, starts the Jesuit order, which is gonna, has caused us untold grief to this day. Sadly, Ignatius Loyola was a very sincere guy, terribly loyal to the Catholic Church in a way that he shouldn't have been and not mastered by the Bible, but very sincere. I think we'll probably see him in heaven someday. Okay, so what can we learn very quickly from all this? First thing, preaching is God's tool for change. It was Zwingli's preaching that changed everything in the Reformation. Secondly, Zwingli's understanding of the Lord's Supper is the consensus Protestant understanding today. Thirdly, most Protestants also accept Zwingli's view on images and statues. And next, Zwingli erred with the Anabaptists. At that time, everyone assumed the union of church and state. So again, Zwingli is a man with feet of clay. And lastly, Luther's response to Zwingli put an exclamation mark on the truth that how we say something is as important as what we say. Life and death are in the power of the tongue, Proverbs. What Zwingli started, Calvin is going to finish. So let's close with prayer. And if you have any questions, come talk to me afterwards. 